Genesis 37, chapter 12 to 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of, his, of, out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to it, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balms, and mare on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lift, lift him up out of the pit, and sold him to Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in, in, in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put the sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Shell to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard.
This is the word of God. This has been a really hard year. March 11th, which passed this week, marks a shift. It's when the World Health Organization declared COVID a pandemic and in the United States, shutdown began. Certainly in New York City, which was considered at the time an epicenter in the United States, uh, things closing down, um, fear, uh, stress, all of these things making for a very hard year. As is often the case in the midst of high pressure context, discouraging contexts, impossible contexts, overwhelmingly awful contexts. Sometimes what is good about humanity comes out in surprising wells, humanity's creativity, our uh, heroism, our goodness, those things come out. And if you look over this year, there are evidences, there are stories of those things. But what's more common, and is certainly uh, lots of evidences, uh, from this past year is that when things are difficult, when we're afraid, when we're stressed, when we're limited, it often brings out the worst as well. And this year was filled with examples of just how troubled we are, how difficult we are. Uh, and it happened with, with, the, with an exposure of incompetence or corruption in leaders. It showed itself in our selfish hearts deep-seated anger and, and problems that we've been ignoring. If you think about racism towards Asians uh, getting magnified and intensified this year, partly because of making a simple link between COVID and Wuhan. And so story after story, just this week in Westchester, an 83-year-old Korean-American woman spit on and punched, if you could imagine punching an 83-year-old woman. Uh, and that that's one of many instances, what on earth um, are we seeing in ourselves? And so I I'm, I'm highlighting the negative, not because there's not good things, but because we have to grapple with that reality. And the story we're looking at today, the story of Joseph, the particular story that we've heard read, is part of a larger story where wonderful things happen. The story ends in, in such a way that that this complex, awful, hopeless situation resolves in ways we couldn't have imagined. But if you look at this passage itself, if you don't know the larger story, there is so little that's hopeful, so little that's good. It's, it's really a picture of how awful things can be. And so, yes, we know the larger story, but if this was the only unit that we read, I think we would be wise to, to hear the reading and think there's nothing good in this and no good could come from it. And that's why it's a helpful story, because it's, it's a reminder that, that God is always doing something bigger. And that's something that we need right now. There, there are awful things, and we don't need to pretend that they're not awful. We don't need to make excuses for them. But we also don't need to get overwhelmed by them or participate in them. There's a redemptive story that helps reframe things for us, the, the, the biblical story. But today, as we, as we uh, go into this passage, uh, we're likely to feel more of the the challenge. And so I, I want to talk about three things, impossibility, impact, and imagination. And I'm going to begin with impossibility. You know, our own story, um, from the very beginning, we have things we hope in. Most of us probably hoped enough in science and in the competent researchers 
to know that with enough time, we will be able to come up with a solution. And here we are. Uh, we have a vaccine. I mean, remarkable how quickly they were able to <clears throat> bring it together and get it approved. But, but the impossibility of the situation, even knowing we will eventually figure out a way to, to solve the virus, we will um, uh, find solutions, whatever it is we had along the way, there was a sense in which, but what's impossible is to completely stop things. So here we are now, 2.6 million worldwide dead. So we can say we know eventually human creativity and intelligence will help solve this, but along the way, we have to be realistic that, that at some point we will stop the death toll. We will do all that we can to minimize it. But it's impossible to think that we can beat this virus unscathed. And if you see how uh, all of the, the wisdom that was used to try to sustain the economy and to keep food distribution going and all of these things that we could look back and say, this is wonderful. And yet along the way, uh, we could also recognize it's remarkable um, how we minimize the damage. But at the end of the day, this was bigger than us. This was impossible. So much devastation and suffering. And so we come to this passage and, and that sense of impossibility is there. Now, the interesting thing as we, as we come into this passage, the encouraging piece, if you know the larger story, um, is that there are these dreams Joseph had. So, so in the first half of Genesis 37, we looked at last week, he has these two dreams about these sheaves that bow down to one sheave uh, of, uh, sheaves of, of wheat. And then the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to Joseph. And, and the quick interpretation, the understanding in the passage is, these are dreams confirming that one day Joseph's family will come and bow down before him. Now, they don't know how the realization of the dream will be a glorious moment that they're bowing before him is because he saved them. They don't know that. They don't understand it. So they think this is about power and ego and humiliation. So, so the interesting thing is, actually, it's impossible to, you know, in the biblical story, the dream was given in advance so that the reader knows God is going to do something to bring this story at, at an end to something redemptive. What's hopeful is that it's impossible to stop that dream. <laughs> That's actually hopeful for us, the reader. But that impossibility is part of what the, the brothers are grappling with. And so whatever they thought about whether or not they really believed the dream was from God, the passage doesn't say that or whether or not, not they were convinced it would really come true. We know as the reader, it was impossible to stop the dream from being fulfilled. But the brothers knew that they couldn't stop the dream, but they could stop the dreamer. And that creates this impossible situation where it seems as though uh, human depravity will express itself to hinder what is good, what, what we now know is in their own interest. Often in the Bible, God works uh, to show his, his unique goodness and power in impossible situations. So for Abraham, promised that his descendants would fill the earth and bless many. Uh, it seemed impossible because he and his wife were unable for years after that promise to conceive. And yet that impossibility creates the context to see what God can uniquely do. Moses, before the greatest leader of the world, God saying, tell him to let my people go. It seemed an impossible situation. How could this small group of people overcome this enormous empire? This story has similar echoes in which Joseph's brothers so hate him that their intention is to do away with him. And it seems impossible that God revealed that one day there would be this redemptive moment where Joseph would save his brothers. And yet they can't stop the dream, but they want to kill the dreamer. So verses 19 and 20, Joseph comes sent by his father, Jacob, uh, to find out how they're doing and bring a report back. And they see him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. So right there. 
the, the dream is still troubling them enough, even though this is now 50 or 60 miles away. So time must have passed by the time Joseph gets there between they're hearing about the dream, but they're still bothered by it. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. And there's their plan in a nutshell. Let's do away with Joseph. Let's come up with an excuse so we're not caught. But here's the goal. We will see what becomes of his dreams. And what they mean by that is a mocking laugh. Nothing will become of his dreams. We will never bow down to him. And so so they create a scenario in, in terms of their intending intention to kill him. And even when they sell him into slavery, it seems impossible that the dream would ever be realized. And that's their purpose. Uh, and yet what they don't know is then redemption would be impossible. But it creates this situation where how could anything good come out of this story once this has happened? Now, Reuben tries to do good. Reuben's the oldest son. And what's interesting is it also seems impossible to do good in this situation. So in verse 22, he attempts to rescue Joseph. Reuben says to his brothers, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of his hand. So, so maybe Reuben's plan wasn't the best one. Maybe he should have confronted the brothers and said, this is wicked. We cannot kill him. I'm going to report you to his father. I don't know why he wasn't straightforward. I don't know if this was the best thing to do, but his intention seemed good. Let's diffuse the situation. The angry brothers want to kill Joseph. Let's, let's remove Joseph, put him in a pit for now, give some time for this to come out. And then I'm going to figure out a way to get Joseph out and restore him. That seems Reuben's intentions. But the way the story unfolds, it seems impossible. It does not seem as though Joseph is going to be saved. And so the impossibility of this situation, what good could come out of it? The, the narrative is set up so that we're feeling like nothing good could come out. Uh, and then the focus on the robe. So here the dream is intangible. Joseph has announced the dream. The brothers can't destroy the dream. But the robe is a symbol connected to the dream that, that here robe, uh, Joseph comes as, as one that has dignity and the love and honor of his father. And his robe sets him apart, even though he's young, he's 17, that, that it's, it's an image that one day they will bow down. No, they will, but, but instead he'll be wearing a robe given to him by Pharaoh. <laughs> they don't know this, that destroying the robe doesn't change the plan. Um, but verse 23, when, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. They couldn't destroy the dream, but in an effort to destroy the dreamer, they're able to humiliate him. They're able to take that robe from him and throw him down. And so again, the impossibility that good could come out of this. How could this story land at any point in a good place? Um, and, and you see that in the setup. We didn't read verse four this week, but last week, uh, speaking of the brothers about Joseph, verse four of Genesis 37, it says they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, you could argue with all of this and say, well, it's not that they could not, because Joseph could have come and they could have said, here you come again to get, bring a bad report to, to our father. And Joseph could say, look, Jacob sent me. I'm not trying to bring a bad report. I'm just coming. I'm telling him what I saw. He's concerned about you. And here you come with this robe. Well, look, guys, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm not trying to be better than you. My father gave me the robe. If there's a problem, maybe your problem's not with me. Let's, let's go talk to our father about it. Lots of opportunities for change and reconciliation. And yet, yet the situation is couched as though there's an impossibility. They could not speak peace. Now, it's not that they could not, they would not. But there's such hatred, such bitterness, uh, such a longstanding hostility that, that what we're presented with is this hopeless situation that it's not going to end well. 
And so they act on this and they wind up not killing him. They send, sell him into slavery, but then they go and they deceive their father with a lie that is so terrible. Uh, it would be better if he had been killed and they told his father he had been sold into slavery. That's the kind of lie that it would be wrong to lie, but it would give hope to his father. It's the opposite. Joseph alive, but they, but they tell the father, the son whom you love most has been killed by an animal. And the evidence they show, the, the robe that they destroyed and, and killed a goat and put blood on, verse 31 and 32, they come to the father and they say, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And it's interesting because their anger at Joseph, clearly the way we think of things in, in modern uh, psychological dynamics, clearly they were angry with their father as well. Maybe it would be impossible to kill their father and still have an inheritance and a hope. So they kill their brother. They come and they say, please identify not whether this is our brother's robe, but whether it's your son's robe. And see that distance. He's not our brother. He's your son. There, there's, there's an impossible situation here. How could reconciliation come? How could this be redemptive? And so, so as we come into this story, it's not that it's inevitable. They, they could have not given it to temptation. They could have dealt differently with their anger. They could have thought differently about the dreams. All of those things were genuinely possible, but the narrative presents it as though that's not what's going to happen. This is an impossible situation. And then you look at your own life and you think, what does my resentment do to me? It's not impossible to get rid of bitterness. So get rid of it. You know, your bitterness is not doing you any good. Uh, have you tried? <laughs> have you tried saying, you know what, rather than going on with this ongoing dialogue, I know it's not good. I know I'm being petty. I don't want this. And it feels impossible. And then you have these temptations, you know, people struggling with lust. You give them this quick advice, take a cold shower, go for a walk, but it seems impossible. Unless I act on this, it's never going to go away. And so advice seems uh, like you don't understand. There's no hope that I could wait this out. It seems like unless I act on this, I'm stuck with it for the rest of my life. It seems impossible. It's not, but that's how we experience sin within us and the sin from without. It creates this impossibility that says you can't do good. Nothing good could come. That's certainly uh, how the story is presented to us. And so what I want to talk next about is impact, because one of the ways that we need to grapple with what seems to be an impossibility is to, to really understand the impact, to, to force ourselves to recognize we have choices. The brothers did not have to kill Joseph. They did not have to sell him into slavery. There are better options. And yet it seemed impossible. We have better options, but it can seem impossible uh, to imagine them. And so we need to have some understanding of the impact of our own sin. So it sobers us. Now, Judah in this story plays a very interesting role. So now here's the section I've moved from impossibility into impact for those of you that, that are following along with the outline in the bulletin. Judah plays the role of a savior in this story, which is very interesting because it's not his intention. He doesn't mean good. As far as we know, maybe he was thinking something that the narrator didn't capture. That's possible. But as far as we can tell, he did not intend to do good. But the brothers want to kill the dreamer. Joseph, in selling him off, makes it appear as though the dream is done away with. We will never bow down to him. And yet uh, Judah, who sells him off, Judah creates the possibility that the dream can be fulfilled again. Jo Joseph has been kept alive. And at the end, the dream is realized. Jo Judah plays an important role in that, but, but he gets no credit for it. It's not like Reuben, who seems to have said, 
uh, you know, that's the interesting thing about the situation. Reuben really wanted to save Joseph, but is, but is not able to. Uh, Judah really wanted to harm Joseph. And yet in his intention to harm him, this is what, what we see about God's unique redemptive wisdom. God turns that so that Judah becomes a means of salvation for himself. Because Joseph is kept alive, Judah will be able to eat in 20 years during the famine. But he doesn't know that. What he knows right now is that he wants to sell him into slavery. And so verses 26 and 27, um, here's Judah's argument. Judah says to his brothers, what profit, take note of that word profit, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. It sounds kind of moral, doesn't it? He's our brother, and you don't kill your brother. Now, in Genesis 9, a previous chapter, Noah is told by God, you kill no human being. Why? Not because you're related to them, not because their family will give vengeance, but because human beings are made in God's image. Every human being belongs to God. So whether or not a human being is your brother or sister, you don't kill them. Joseph has a more narrow category. This is our brother. He's our own flesh, so let's not kill him but let's sell him. <laughs> and the, our, our faulty sinful moral reasoning, if, if you went to a family and said, why don't we sell our brother? That would seem the most absurd thing ever. But when you say really meaning it, why don't we kill our brother? All of a sudden selling our brother seems like we're doing something just and right. You know, you think about in our own country, how, how is it possible that we could justify the slave trade? And yet there, there's something that says that there's a broader context where, where things must have been bad enough that we could look at capturing human beings and mistreating and enslaving them and feel like we're actually doing something beneficial. Uh, it, it's, it's a picture of the messiness and the blindness of sin that here's Judah. What profit is there? It sounds self-serving. What will we gain if we kill Joseph? <laughs> well, this is not about what you will gain. This is about what responsibility do you have to your own brother, whether or not you hate him? Well, if we sell him, we're done with Joseph. We make some money. Isn't it a win-win? And what's clear in the passage, it's, it's not a win-win. It's a lose for everyone, except God uses it to bring a win for everyone. But, but that's God working despite Judah. You know, the book of Romans makes this argument for God's graciousness, his forgiveness, and talking about the power of sin in us. And the inevitable question that comes up is to say, wait a second, does God really forgive us? You know, if we're really that bad and God forgives us, doesn't his, forgi doesn't his forgiveness highlight the unique greatness of God? And Paul, who writes Romans, would say, absolutely. And then the odd thing is, as Paul is interacting with what he imagines the reader, it's almost as the, if the reader would then say, amazing. So if I'm going to dedicate my life to magnifying the glory of God, why don't I sin even more? so that God's grace could abound even more. So in Romans 6, verse 1, after explaining how God deals with our complex problem by not counting our sins against us, but by bearing them himself, Paul raises the question, so shall we go on sinning so that grace would abound? He says, by no means. It would be a misunderstanding of the nature of sin. It's not simply that sin's problem is it makes you culpable and worthy of judgment selfishly, that's what we grasp. Wait a second. Am I really accountable for everything I think, do, and say? That's terrifying. But it's that selfish component that we say, well, what profit is there? And we come up with 
with a kind of morality that minimizes our sin and maximizes our gain, but allows us to continue sinning. And we have no concept of the impact. And, and yes, a motivation to stop sinning is because we will be accountable for our lives. But, but when you understand the impact and ugliness of sin, when there's a possibility this world is filled with good that we can do, think of the impact if we resist temptation and if we do what's good. And yet the world is set up to say, ah, it's impossible. Give in. Why not? Cheat a little bit. Cover it up. Take something for yourself. And what we're shown here in a clear way is that the impact of sin, it's not simply when sin is accounted for and judged, but the impact of sin makes us sober up to say, or we should say, I want nothing to do with it. It's this impossible situation where we're tempted, where we're evil, we're caught up, but, but we want to get out of it. And so, so the impossible situation, uh, think about the impact. So, so, so Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. Nowhere does it say that they hate Jacob. The reality is they seem to. They seem to hate Jacob's favoritism. They resent him. But it's complex. They, must, they want their father's love. I don't know. I'm not going to try to psychologize it. But in order to sin against Joseph, they have to sin against their father. Whether or not they d- derive joy from that, maybe they resented their father's unique love for Joseph and had satisfaction seeing their father mourn. Or maybe they they thought, boy, we wish it wasn't this bad, but it was the only way to deal with Joseph. I don't know what they were thinking. But the impact of their decision to sell Joseph into slavery and then lie about it and say that he was killed, verses 34 and 35, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his lines. This is an ancient symbol of, of, of mourning, of discomforting yourself. And he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Think of these sons trying to comfort their father, the fraud, but he refused to be comforted. So here's the impact. A father so distraught by the the son of Rachel, the wife that he loved. Now Rachel's gone. Now Joseph's gone. He's overwhelmed with grief because of a lie, because of their vengeance. The impact on this man uh, that he will carry with him for the next 25 or so years, roughly, before he finds out Joseph is still alive. Imagine that the impact on a father needlessly thinking that his son has died. But when we think of the impact, you know, whenever whenever we look at a story like this, we think, but the brothers got what they wanted. Now Joseph is gone. Their father, Joseph has to deal. So the impact on Joseph should be obvious. He's sold into slavery. That's miserable. The impact on Jacob, obvious. He thinks he loses his son. But you read a story like that and you think, but it's a gain for the brothers. The brothers are rid of Joseph. Now they're back in candidates for the, for the father's blessing, for his favoritism. They don't have to deal with the son and look at the son that they hate. Um, no problem for them. But that's not the way that sin works. And that's one of the things that's hard for us to grasp in moments of temptation or in the way that we look at the world is to think that sin will always have a ne- negative impact broadly. Sin will never benefit some and harm others, but it always harms everyone. And we see that the brothers themselves, if you, if you go ahead to Genesis 42, I'm going to read for you from verses 21 to 22. So the, the where this story goes is that Joseph's brothers wind up going to Egypt because they're starving and Egypt has food. Egypt has food because Joseph has become the primary counselor that, that little do they know that their actions have led to the salvation of Egypt, which brings the salvation of the family, but they're there in Joseph's presence and it's been more than 20 years, so they don't recognize him. They see him in another glorious robe, but they they don't know it's his brother. And he, Joseph, who recognizes them, 
wants Benjamin. The youngest brother is not with him. So 10 of them are there in Egypt, sent by the father, who's so traumatized that he will never again let a, a, a child of Rachel out of his sight. That's the picture that we get. I lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin. Joseph says, go back and bring Benjamin with me. And in order to guarantee that you do it, one of the brothers must stay. And the brother's response is fascinating. They have a conversation among themselves that they don't think Joseph can understand. But here's what they say in Genesis 42, 21 to 22. They said to one another, remember this more than 20 years later, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You know, 20, 25 years later, this incident, they're going to Egypt and wanting to buy grain and being told by this powerful leader that they need to bring their son back has nothing to do with Joseph as far as we can tell. But, but now there's this, this link. <laughs> you want Rachel's other, Rachel's other son. You want us to bring our brother. You want us to now tell our father that he's going to lose another son. You know, you read Genesis 37, and all you see is the hardness, the lie. And you think the brothers gained, but Joseph and Jacob lost. You know, it's, you know I wish the Bible was written, you know, like modern literature, where, where we had that sense of how awful it was, but you get that later. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. So it wasn't this matter-of-fact business deal, sorry, Joseph, you need to go with them, but but 17-year-old Joseph pleading, don't sell me. They made the decision to do it. And in their anger, they were able to do it. But you can't do that and go on 10, 15 years later and not have that distort your whole sense of the world that now something difficult comes and their perception, their understanding is we're getting back on us payment for the wrong that we did. Was that the first time they had that thought? Maybe. But I wouldn't be surprised if every time something went wrong in their lives, if that guilt that they tried to keep buried that they couldn't bury would come back up and say, we saw our, our begging brother and we resented him and we sold him. And now every time something goes wrong in my life, my only conclusion is I deserve this. You know, you can't escape your guilty conscience. That's part of this impossibility. The impact of sin is it will always leave you impacted and everyone touched by it. You know, you think of, of simple examples of minor ways that we skim. You know, you cheated an exam. What consequences could come? Well, if I get caught, I could get kicked out of class. I could get a bad grade. If I get found out, my parents will not be proud of me. But if I get away with it, it's a gain. So you cheat on your exam and you think you get away with it. And so you have this pattern, cheating exam. That's not the most immoral thing ever, cheating on exams. You're not a terrible person for cheating. But there, no consequences, right? The consequence was good. You got a better grade than you would have gotten if you didn't cheat. But, you know, 15 or 20 years later, you decide to take a career risk. Let me step into something that's a little bit over my head. Let me be a little bit ambitious. And you show up and something about your, your high pressure context with all your competent coworkers convinces you you're a fraud. I don't belong here. And I think I'm going to be found out. Now that comes from many things. There's so many things in us that cause insecurity. 
But how much of it is one strand that we never deal with, where you think, well, I got away with cheating back then, but, but there's something to be formed in my mind, which is to say, well, at one point I was proud that I was able to, to do what I shouldn't have done and benefit from it and get away with it. But now I'm in a situation where that's how I've learned to relate to the world. I'm going to need to fake it here because once they find me out, it's going to be awful. And, and, and it's not that the past cheating is the only factor in it. For many, it's no factor at all. It's just our insecurity. It's any number of things. But we never solve it because we never go back and deal with that guilt. We never go back and, and recognize, you know, I did things and, and I need to, to bring them to light and be truthful. And as long as it's there, it's having an influence in my life. And so we, we do our psychology and we do our uh, trying to be compassionate to ourselves and and everybody around us tries to comfort us and to say, don't feel so bad. And yet there are these things in us that we don't remember or, or we remember and we never talk about and don't deal with that leaves its impact. Why do we never feel good enough? Well, uh, sometimes it's because we know deep inside that we're not good enough and we're not dealing with it. We're trying to, to cover it up and, and you can't. And that's part of this impossible situation where where the Bible presents humanity to say, look, there's an impact to our sin that once we sin, once sin comes into this world, it makes its way through and corrupts everything and creates an impossible situation that, that we have the opportunity. God has given us the wisdom and the resources and the creativity to solve our problems, and yet we don't. And it's that impact uh, that should be a key motivation to say, you know, when I'm tempted to do wrong, it doesn't matter what, what the, the short-term impact is. I know in my heart, if it's not right, at some point, it will need to be made right. And so that should help us in our temptation. But sometimes our temptation seems impossible. I can't resist. What we need is something redemptive. And so the last thing I want to talk about, I've talked about uh, impossibility and impact. I want to talk about imagination. Because we have to imagine in this story that there's a dream that's true, and we don't know how it will, will come about at this point in the reading, and we don't know exactly what it will look like when it's fulfilled. But Joseph holding on to that dream, now did Jacob hold on to that dream? I don't know. We're told in the New Testament that Abraham, when he was tested to give up Isaac, <laughs> believed that God could raise the dead. Did, did Jacob sit there this whole time saying, Lord, I trust you that one day I will see Joseph again? Nothing indicates that. But in his desperation, did he hold on to this dream that the, the son would one day bow down before Joseph? I don't know if he did, but he should have. It would not have been crazy. We, we, if we were there, we'd not have, we would not have counseled that. But, but God gave this dream, and because it was given by God, it will be realized despite everything done to make that dream seem impossible and seem terrible. And so the only hope in this passage, the hint of it comes from verse 36, a simple word, meanwhile, <laughs> this awful thing, you know, this impossible situations where the brothers are going to do something awful, and it, it doesn't seem like it's going to work out well. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, there's nothing good about that. He was sold into slavery. He, was, he becomes a slave of an important official. So within this passage, there's nothing good. But, but that meanwhile indicates that there is a, a story that's going on that God is in control of. And while we're seeing this terrible, miserable story, we realize that God is somehow working, that, that the details that are impossible for any of us to fix, God brings them to light. 
And so, you know, so Reuben's words later in Genesis 42, when he says there comes a reckoning for Joseph's blood, it's interesting, their plan was to shed his blood, let's kill our brother. And they decide not to, they sell him into slavery, they never actually shed his blood. But but blood in the Bible is about life. And Reuben's conscience, there's a reckoning for his blood. Well, they could say we didn't shed his blood, we kept him alive, we just made his life miserable. Reuben remembers the full weight of it. Uh, we're responsible for his blood. And Judah becomes a savior in this story, but it's a corrupted salvation story. It has all of the elements of a salvation story, except that it has deception in it. So rather than killing Joseph, they pull him out of the pit. That sounds redemptive. They take him from the lowest place, except that they're the ones who stripped him from, of his robe and humiliated him and threw him in the pit. And they wind up killing a goat and putting blood on Joseph's robe. And in ancient cultures, uh, lots of people were offering sacrifices where there would be a substitution. There's a sense in which you can say this goat died in Joseph's place. You, you can say that from a narrative perspective, maybe. Joseph was supposed to die, but Joseph didn't die, but something needed to die. But, but the death, it, it wasn't religious. It wasn't atoning. It was something that they did to deceive. We, we killed a goat. So there's a sense in which that goat's death was presented to lie to the father so that he would think his son had died. But there's nothing redemptive. There's nothing atoning. There's nothing religious about it. It's a human action. It's part of a conspiracy. And so this has all of the elements of a story that could be redemptive, except every element has corruption in it. And yet you follow this story down and Judah does not know by, by advocating a plan where Joseph is not killed. It's not simply that Joseph's life, life is spared. It's not simply that the Egyptian's life is spared. But the brother's life will be spared, that Judah himself will benefit from the son that he saved, even if he saved him in a corrupt way. Because Judah being saved by Joseph means that one day Judah's descendant, David, would come and would bring peace to his people. One day, Judah and David's descendant, Jesus, would come. And Jesus would come, and he would get all the elements of the story right. He would come sent by the father to hostile brothers who hate and resent him and reject him. He would be stripped of his clothing and thrown in a pit and sold to the Romans. But what we're told is that this story is the one story that doesn't create a deception. Blood is not shed in order to make it look like something different happened. But it creates the truth that blood is shed to say sin is always awful and it must be dealt with. There needs to be a reckoning. We can't make excuses for our sin. We can't blame shift it. We can't pretend it's unseen or not present. It needs to get dealt with. And yet there's an impossibility that none of us even remembers all of our sin. None of us understands the depth of it. All we know is the ongoing sense of guilt that we carry with us because none of us is perfect. All of us fall short of God's standard. We're told that there's the shedding of blood and a substitution but this time it's not a goat, it's not a sheep, it's not an animal, but it's Jesus Christ himself, who, unlike the brother who sells his brother for his own gain, he offers himself over in order to save the people who despise him. It's the one true redemptive story that says in the wisdom of God, God has come to deal with sinners and their sin, to atone for guilt, to bring forgiveness, not simply because God is nice and doesn't want us to suffer for our sin, but because God is just, he will bear the weight of sin and its shame and pain and hostility in order to mask, unmask the deception and the lie 
of death and the assumption that it's impossible. There's nothing you can do to get out of your sin. What's impossible for us, God has made possible by offering us forgiveness. And now there's a redemptive story. What we're told is there is a way to deal with your guilt. There is a way to not have to be perfect today and to be honest about the past. There is a way to move forward with hope, which is not to say if you ignore it, you'll be okay. Or if you atone for your own guilt by constantly hating yourself and choosing misery every opportunity, then eventually you'll have made things right. None of that's true. That's part of the lie, the deception of these false gospel stories we have. We're trying to cover up our guilt. We wind up just moving it around and never dealing with it. Our guilt is dealt only through the Redeemer. But what we're told is if we receive that by grace, then the worst of our sins are dealt with through forgiveness. And the possibility of redemption is offered to us all so that the story by our design can be impossible and hopeless. But meanwhile, <laughs> there's a greater story, the story of Jesus. And if we, if we connect with that story, none of us have to be hopeless. None of us have to allow our present or past guilt to define our future. And what does this mean? It means that, that by grace and through faith, there's a redemptive hope that we need to imagine, that, that we need to say beyond this world that we see, that evidence is ongoing brokenness, be, beyond my ongoing failures, that, that's, that's part of the argument I have with myself. I'm never good enough. I'm never hopeful. We have to imagine a reality where God says, it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus Christ. And if I have raised him up, I will raise up those who hope in him. If I have allowed him to suffer death for forgiveness, I will forgive you when you stand before me. So now imagine a new reality. If that's true, how can you live differently now? And is that new imagination, the redemptive story that creates the new possibility where maybe there is sin that you can deal with? And so part of it is not simply you're, you're, you're released from, from the consequences, but actually maybe you're now released to, to make things right. And your forgiveness doesn't depend on it, but you realize the impact of sin and that's what you want. So, so guilt and our experience of guilt, what we want most is to be free of it because guilt is miserable. Guilt where there's no redemption, nothing good comes from it. But where there is redemption, guilt is not a terrible thing. If guilt is conviction, if guilt says, look, you've done something wrong and that's not okay, you, th there's better for you. You need to make it right. Then that guilt we have is not to be something we hold on to so that we can never have a good life. It's something we look squarely at to say, I want to get sin out of my life. And so if Jesus has released me, then with release from guilt, maybe you can make right. Some of you can reconcile a broken relationship. And if you've been forgiven by Christ for the wrong you've done and you can fix it, go fix it. But we're told that sometimes you can't reconcile. Sometimes it's impossible. God removes the guilt, but he offers you a new reality. Now live in the future as somebody who understands the impact of sin. And, and you can't atone for it. You can't make up for it. You can't equal the balance, but you can put sin behind you. And so uh, one thing that we need to do is to have that ima imagination to repair, to, to, to devote ourselves to repairing things. We need to be sober, to recognize just because we're forgiven doesn't mean we've, we've been made perfect. And sometimes our sin will feel impossible to, to, to let go of, but we need the imagination to say, I'm not a slave. I may feel like I've been sold over to sin, but Jesus has redeemed me. And now I don't have to sin. It's not inevitable. And you can be courageous and you can be willing to suffer. And you can know that God in his grace will sustain you. 
Is there a guarantee that you will never sin? No, we need to be sober. All of us will continue to fail and we always need the gospel, but you can grow. You could reduce the impact of sin in your life and in the, the lives of others. And you could deal with the guilt of your sin every time you do it. You need that. You need to be sober. And it requires imagination that there's a redemptive story that your guilt will, will darken. And you'll go back to the self-loathing, the cynical story, the hateful story that creates an impossibility. And we need to, to have the imagination to recognize we can't kill God's story. We can't stop the dream, even if we tried to kill the dreamer. If Jesus comes and announces good news, we can kill Jesus. But if God raises him up, God will deliver what he promised. And so that creates a new reality. You know, there was a tragic story this week in Queens. Uh, two gangs get into a fight and they start shooting at each other. And what typically works, it's this story that you hear, nobody in either gang gets shot, but a mother having nothing to do with anything on the block food shopping gets shot and gets killed. And it's this picture of the impossibility of our world. How, you know, so what do you do? So now you imprison these gang members. Will that bring her back? How do you fix the situation? The news article that I read, the, the father made a statement and it struck me and I, I'm reading into this. It's just a short, it's just a short quote, but here's what the father said. He said, she is in good hands in God's hands. Now, the only thing we want speaking for the family, the only thing we want is more controls of weapons in this area. It's really sad, really sad. I don't feel hate towards the people who did this. Now, I'm going to take that as a genuine statement when he said it, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take him as meaning it, but but maybe he didn't, maybe he felt hate, but he knew that he, he should speak the better way. That's commendable. Maybe he didn't feel hate. Maybe God gave him grace. And I'm thinking of, of this redemptively because he says she's in God's hands now. She's in good's hands. Something, I don't know anything about this man and what he believed, um, but something about his perspective gave a redemptive spin where he says, I don't feel hate towards these people. Now, in a month, will he start to feel hate? Possibly, very possibly. Some of you right now may be offended to think he needs to feel hate. This is awful. His daughter was taken from him. Hate would not be wrong. If he would have said, I hate them, I think he would be morally right. I'm pointing this out, not because this man was so spiritual and perfect that he didn't feel hate. I'm pointing it out only to say the ability to say she's in God's hands now allowed him to imagine a solution that didn't require vengeance. That he thought, if I can't have my daughter back, if God is the only one that I could look to for that, I could enter into this situation where now I imagine more possibilities than simply seeing these people get the electric chair. Now, they should be arrested and punished. There should be justice. All of that, what I'm highlighting is his perspective created a new possibility. It's that perspective Joseph has that at the end of the story, he doesn't say, God meant this for good, but I'm still going to punish you. Nor does he say it's no big deal that you did this. He says what you meant for evil, the damage that you did, the suffering that I experienced. But look at God's goodness. It, it creates a new possibility that he no longer has to avenge himself. But he sees that he could, he could love the brothers that treated him like an enemy. And in that story, they're reconciled and the dream is realized that when they bow down to him, it's not pleading for mercy. But it's bowing down to receive food that they didn't deserve. And it's that possibility that the Christian story alone gives an imagination for it to say, you can do nothing about your imperfections, your sin, and your guilt. But God has done one thing 
that makes us even more guilty. We handed over the Savior and we rejected him. God will not hold that sin against us, but he will use that to be the very thing that deals with our sin. So we don't have to deal with what we can't deal with. He says, now, if you hope that my giving life to Jesus means I will give life to you through him. We can imagine a reality that we are no longer tied by our sin or weighed down by the sins of others. But we can go back out into this broken world and hope for something redemptive and choose to do that. With it being a dream to say, I don't know if I do the right thing here, how good could come of it, but I know the impact of sin and I'm not going to do it because I'm trusting my redeemer. The Christian story creates that possibility and it creates the possibility that you could be free of your guilt and that you could live the newness of life. So take hold of that story. Believe it. What's impossible for us is possible for God. Hold on to that and and live it. I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, we come to you as a guilty people, a confused people, a people that don't understand their own stories, no less this hard, complicated Bible story that climaxes in Jesus dying. How does it work that his death on the cross atones for our sin? Father, I don't know. And most of us don't know. And we, we need to know and work it out because it's true. But we're grateful that even if we don't fully understand how you're doing it, that you've shown us where to look to deal with our sin, that what's impossible for us is not impossible for you. And the resentment and the the inability to reconcile because of our guilt only magnifies your grace, who pardons us and gives us new life. Lord, by the power of your spirit, give us that new life. Free everyone here from their guilt. I pray that you'd remove it. I pray that anyone here who comes today haunted um, by their past, uh, unable to sleep because of memories of what they've done or terrible sins that have happened, would release them from that, that the truth of the gospel would, would remind us that you clothe us, that you've dealt with sin, that you free us. We pray that today would be a day of freedom, a, a day of new imagining, a day of conviction that the redemptive story is the most true story in the world. And if we, if we live out of that, sin and death is not inevitable, but life and glory are. Lord, help us to go back into the world this week the power of your spirit to live as though that story is our absolute truth. Lord, help us with every way that we're tempted not to believe it and help us to act upon it so that the impact in our lives would be for our blessing and for the blessing of those around us, but so that the whole of our lives will be to glorify Christ who gave himself for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.